Good morning, North Shore Baptist Church. Good morning, friends. Church, we need to have a DTR. Many of you might not know what a DTR is. Uh, It's an abbreviation that was popularized in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, It stands for Define the Relationship. Uh, A DTR is usually used uh, to as a name for that awkward conversation that dating couples sometimes have to have to establish, like, where are we at in this relationship? Are we still interested in one another? Are we moving closer to marriage? That's that's a DTR, define the relationship. And what's significant, most significant about the DTR is that once you have clarity on what the relationship is, then you have clarity to adjust your behavior according to what the relationship is. Like, if we're not moving towards marriage and you are not as interested in me as I am in you, then I'm probably going to call you less. I'm not going to take you out and pay for your dinner anymore or whatever it is, right? Or if we're moving in the right direction, I'm going to start looking for a ring. Once we know what the relationship is, then we can act accordingly. And this sort of Relational defining is not limited to dating couples. Sometimes family and friends need to have a DTR, where you go to someone that you're familiar with, maybe you used to hang out with, you say, hey, I'm sensing some tension or some distance between us. Like, are we still cool? Like, are, we, are we as close as I thought we were? Maybe we're not. And maybe my behavior has to be adjusted according to what the relationship is. In a poignant moment in my life, my father and I have been estranged for many, many, many years. And when I got to see him face to face at my grandfather's funeral, I said to him simply with tears pouring down my face, Dad, I am your son. I defined the relationship. And the fact that he is my father and I am his son means that we ought to act accordingly. Today we're going to hear from the book of Philemon. And at the heart of the book of Philemon is a DTR. Not between a romantic couple, but between a master named Philemon and a bondservant or slave named Onesimus. Their relationship has taken a turn, and the Apostle Paul writes to Philemon to give him the DTR and to call Philemon to act accordingly. The purpose of Philemon in scripture, like why is this little book here, is to show us that Jesus Christ fundamentally changes relationships and leads us to live accordingly. That's our thesis for today. Jesus Christ fundamentally changes relationships and leads us to live accordingly. Now, if that thesis holds true, then the question that we need to ask is, what is our relationship, church? And how, then, ought we to live? We need to have a DTR. But first, let's hear the book of Philemon. If you have a copy of the scripture, please open to the book of Philemon. If you pop open the New Testament, you can find Hebrews. Philemon is the book right before that. It's only on one page. It's easy to miss. Short book, probably the most personal of all of Paul's writings. Let me pray, and then we'll get into the word. Father, please speak to us today through this letter. As I speak, Lord, I pray that you would speak by your spirit. Let your word define our relationships to you and to one another. Amen. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. 
And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some refreshment from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So there are three primary players in this letter. There's a number of people named in the beginning and at the end, but the three prime characters in the book of Philemon are Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. And so we're going to cement our understanding of the letter by looking at the relationships between these three men. First, the relationship between Paul and Philemon, then the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, and finally the relationship between Paul and Onesimus. And then once we have a good handle on the relationships as they are, then we're going to look at the appeal that Paul makes on the basis of these relationships. And then once we've completed that, we will have our DTR. So let's start with Paul and Philemon. Who is Paul first? Well, Paul, he introduces himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus, which means that he is in jail because of his work In the name of Christ, he's in jail for serving the Lord in going about and proclaiming the gospel. He's probably in Rome. This imprisonment probably refers to the time that he is in jail at the end of the book of Acts in Acts 28, where he is allowed to stay by himself, but under guard. And he has people coming to him to and fro, and he's sharing the gospel, and he stays there in Rome for two years on his own expense. So as you think about Paul being imprisoned for the gospel in this particular letter, don't think about like a dark, smelly dungeon or like a high-security prison where he's in solitary confinement. He has a pretty open ability to communicate and to fellowship with people in the midst of this imprisonment. He's got a soldier guarding him at all times. Paul is an old man, as he says in verse 9. I, Paul an old man. So he's coming towards the end of his ministry. Paul is not mentioned in the letter, but as we know, Paul is an apostle. As he designates himself in the book of Romans that Pastor Ed is preaching through, and in a number of his letters, he designates himself an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that he has been personally commissioned by the risen Lord to go and preach the gospel. He has a particular authority that he can exercise having been given that charge. But in the letter, he doesn't introduce himself as an apostle. And I think as we go through the letter, you'll kind of understand why he doesn't put forth that designation. 
So that's Paul. Now let's talk about Philemon. Who is he? Well, we know that he's a Christian because in verse 1, Paul calls him a beloved fellow worker. And in verse 3, he says to Philemon and to the people in his house, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And he counts Philemon as a brother, as a Christian. Philemon was probably wealthy. Paul sends greetings to the church that meets in Philemon's house, which means he probably had to have pretty sizable digs for the people to come in and to worship and to sing and to praise together in his home. So he probably had some means. He likely lived in Colossae. Uh, That's where the letter to the Colossians was written. And we'll see later on in our study that there is strong evidence that the letter of Philemon and the letter of Colossians were sent together to Colossae. And so that's probably where Philemon was. So now let's talk specifically about the relationship between these two, Paul and Philemon. Well, we've seen already that Paul regards him as a brother, as a co-worker. They labor together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul has been greatly encouraged in his absence hearing about the work that Philemon is doing back in Colossae. In verses 5, he says, I I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints. And he says, for this reason, I'm giving thanks for you always in my prayers. In verse 7, he says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon is a mature brother in the Lord who is serving the saints well. And this news is getting to Paul's ears all the way in Rome. And Paul is very happy. Paul is very thankful for Philemon. In this relationship, Paul is the authority figure by merit of his apostleship. In verse 8, he says, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. He doesn't do it. But he is bold enough to, he has the authority to as the apostle. And further, Philemon is indebted to Paul. In verse 19, Paul says, To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Which most likely means that Paul was the means by which Philemon heard the gospel and got saved. And so Philemon, Paul... Philemon and Paul are equal in this brother-co-worker relationship, but Paul has authority as the apostle, and Paul is a spiritual father to Philemon in that he shared with him the gospel. So their relationship has been fundamentally altered by the work of Christ. Whatever they were before, now that Philemon has heard the gospel from Paul and received it, their relationship is now changed to something very different. Now we'll move on to the next relationship, Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus was a servant or a slave or a bondservant in Philemon's house. Uh, The word in Greek that gets translated could take any one of those three translations. They have a little bit of nuance to them, but he served in Philemon's house. Rich Philemon had a servant or a slave or a bondservant, and his name was Onesimus. Uh, We see that in verse 16. Paul is saying, you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, which means that Onesimus was a bondservant. So we can talk a little bit then about slavery under the Roman Empire. Slavery was very common. This was not an unusual position for Onesimus to be in. It's estimated that up to half the total population in the Roman Empire were slaves. The way that you became a slave in the Roman Empire was either you were captured in war or you had some sort of debt that you could not pay off or you committed some sort of crime that brought you into slavery. So it's not quite like slavery as we think of it as Americans and looking back into our past. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not one people trying to subjugate another people because they thought they were superior or because of the color of their skin or anything like that. It was primarily a power move and an economic move. Depending where you were in the social structure and what happened, you could very easily end up a slave. But slaves could rise up in the social ranks. Slaves could have professions. 
In fact, most of the work that was done in the Roman Empire was done by slaves. The doctors were primarily slaves. The plumbers and whoever else they had, the the artisans were mostly slaves. We're not sure exactly what Onesimus' function in Philemon's house was or how he came into slavery. But the thing that's most important about Roman slavery is that slaves were often treated very harshly by their masters. And the gospel comes in, and the gospel fundamentally changes the master-slave dynamic. In Colossians 4, verse 1, based on the gospel, the apostle writes, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The masters who would get converted were no longer to beat and mistreat their slaves, but they were to treat them justly and fairly and kindly as fellow human beings and image bearers of God. Now, you might be curious or even offended as to why the Lord didn't just do away with slavery altogether when the gospel came in. Uh, One argument that is made in favor of this is that, you know, because slavery was so integral a part of the Roman Empire structure that it would have been too disruptive for God to say, just end slavery, and that would have caused problems. So for that reason, God kind of left slavery in place. But God did away with slavery in our country. I mean, it took a war, but the social and economic structures in general seem to improve after that. So I want to give you a better argument for why the Lord left slavery intact in the Roman Empire. And it starts at Romans 11, verse 33 to 34. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? God didn't call for the end of slavery in the Roman world. And he doesn't tell us why not. Nor does he ask for our opinion or counsel as to how he should govern his creation. So as you think about this, look at the pattern of God's work in the scriptures. And even as you look out into our current world today, you will notice that God more often than not doesn't just come in and obliterate causes of sin and suffering and injustice. It's not the way that he works. And that's why people will look back into the Old Testament and they'll say, well, why why didn't God chastise the patriarchs for taking multiple wives? Why did God allow his own people, Israel, to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years? Why doesn't God allow a saved woman to divorce her unsaved husband? Why doesn't God remove the cancer of a faithful believer? Why doesn't God, who is all good, just remove all evil from this world right now? The all-wise, all-good one doesn't tell us. This is information that is above our pay grade. But one thing is quite clear. The work of Christ, the gospel, fundamentally changes our relationship to suffering and injustice. In every suffering and injustice that must be endured, the Lord is more concerned with the position of the heart of the sufferer towards him than he is about the circumstances that he's left around them. I'm going to say it again. In any injustice or suffering that must be endured, God is most concerned about the position of the heart of the sufferer towards him than he is about the circumstance that he's left around them. That is not to say that God is indifferent to an injustice. In fact, he commands his people to do justice. God hates sin, and he does not look upon it with joy. But the Lord is 
more concerned that though evil and injustice currently remain, that the hearts of his people would continue to uphold him as holy and wise and good. And that they would look forward to the promise of the removal of all sin and all suffering and all injustice at the coming of Jesus Christ. This is something that is promised to us through the gospel so that we may hold on to it, have a firm anchor for our souls as we walk through a world of sin and suffering and injustice to the glory of God. And the promise of this final removal is a promise that Jesus himself sealed with his own blood by he himself becoming submissive to receive suffering and injustice to the point of death, all the while upholding faith in his good and gracious Father. Now, there's much more that could be discussed in, in the slavery discussion, uh, slavery in, the, in our world, slavery versus the Roman world. But I think it's enough for our purposes today to hear what the Lord speaks to servants in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to 23. And why this is significant is because it ties the expected conduct of a servant toward their master to the display of the glory of Christ. Listen to this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The call of God to those who were under an unjust master, under an unjust system, he doesn't say to them, buck the system. He says, endure it and trust the Lord to the glory of God. Now we're talking about the relationship between a master and a servant, Philemon and Onesimus. I'm going to assume that Philemon was not one of these harsh masters. He was probably a very kind one. And the reason why I think that is because Paul commends the spiritual maturity of this man, Philemon, and he says nothing to him in the letter by way of rebuke. Like if he was beating Onesimus, and that's why Onesimus ran away, I would imagine that Paul would have also said something like, hey, you need to go read Colossians 4.1 again, man, and, and fix your behavior. He doesn't say any of that. What we do know about Onesimus is that he was not a good and godly servant. In verse 11, Paul says of him, Formerly he was useless to you. Whatever position he had in Philemon's house, Onesimus was not getting the job done. He was not serving to the glory of God as servants are called to do in 1 Peter 2 and also in Colossians chapter 3. Rather than obey and serve, Onesimus ran away, and runaways under Roman law could be branded or put to death. That's probably not what Philemon would do, uh, being a Christian, but he would certainly not be in a position where he was very happy with Onesimus that he ran away. Uh, The current state of their relationship would not be a good one. But yet Paul writes this letter to intercede for Onesimus, to speak on behalf of this disobedient servant. Why? Well, it's because of their relationship, the relationship between Paul and Onesimus, 
which has been fundamentally altered by the work of Christ. So let's look at this. Paul and Onesimus. When Onesimus left Philemon, somehow or another, he ended up with Paul. Maybe he sought him out. Like maybe he had met Paul when Paul was in Colossae. And then when he runs away, he knows where Paul is. And he's like, if anybody's going to be able to get me on Philemon's good side, it's going to be Paul. So I got to go to where he is and, and beg him for his mercy. That might be the case, but we're not told how he gets there. What we do know is that Onesimus was converted while he was with Paul. He was not a Christian when he went to Paul in prison. When he gets to Paul in prison, he becomes a believer. Listen to how Paul describes it in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. The the literal translation of the Greek really grabs it more sweetly. He says, I appeal to you for my child whom I begat in my chains. And I gave birth to this one while I was in chains. It's a, there's a compassion there, right? A mother gives birth to a child and there is love. A father receives his child when the child is birthed and there is love. And Paul is expressing this Onesimus became my child in my imprisonment. I appeal for him. The gospel has significantly changed the relationship between Paul and Onesimus. When I got saved, the man who shared the gospel with me was younger than me by about seven years. He was an employee of mine because I was a manager at the gym, and we kind of had a friendship. Once he shared the gospel and I received it, he became to me a spiritual father. He took me by the hand and he fed me and he cared for me and he fellowshiped with me. We became beloved brothers. We became co-laborers sharing the gospel together in the place that we were. Christ fundamentally changed our relationship. Think about when you got saved. How did your relationships change? Right, between husbands and wives, parents and children, neighbors, old friends, suddenly made new. And we could probably sit here and tell a mass of glorious stories about how the work of Christ in us and in the people around us renovated our relationships with others who were believers. This, this change that has occurred between Paul and Onesimus is only one of myriads and myriads who will stand before the throne of God together, praising the Lord Jesus for all that he's done. Now, after his salvation, Onesimus had probably spent a decent amount of time with Paul. He did service to Paul. Paul says he used to be useless, but now he is indeed useful to me and to you. But despite his deep love for Onesimus, and despite Onesimus's value to Paul, Paul sends him back. He sends him back out of love and respect for Philemon. If you look in verse 12, he says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So he sends him back. He doesn't want to keep him, though he loves him dearly and would love to keep him. said, Philemon, he still belongs to you. I'm going to send him back so that you can decide what to do with him. So he sends him back, probably with the letter to the Colossians, and a man named Tychicus was likely the carrier So in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 to 9, Paul says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. I'm sending him back. And listen, church. It's not the same guy who left you. He is a faithful and beloved brother. He is one of you. 
your relationship has changed. So in the midst of these relationships, these particular three, Paul makes an appeal to Philemon. And the appeal has three aspects. Receive, forgive, and release. So first aspect of the appeal, receive. Paul appeals for Philemon to graciously take Onesimus back because of the sovereign work of Christ. In verses 15 and 16, for perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. This is the DTR. Philemon, this man left you. He ran away. He did not respect you. You should probably be at odds right now. But this man has received the Lord Jesus Christ. This man is now more to you than a bondservant. This man is a beloved brother. You are sons of God together through the gospel. And now the way that you interact with him must be different. I want you to receive him. Paul's relationship with Onesimus has changed, and how much more the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. He says, especially to me, he is a beloved brother, in verse 16, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? You already have a relationship. That relationship was severed. I'm sending him back to you. He is yours once again in the flesh, but not only in the flesh, but also in the Lord. He was lost, and now he is found. He is dead, and now he is alive. You didn't have a brother. Now you have a brother. This is your relationship, Philemon. Act accordingly. Calls him to receive Philemon based on the sovereign work of Christ. Like, perhaps this is why he was parted from you. Oh, but my servant ran away. Yeah, and he came over to me, and he got saved. Who planned that thing? The Lord. And then Paul doubles down on his appeal by highlighting the work of Christ in his own relationship with Philemon. And that's in verse 17. He says, you owe me your own self. Paul was used by God in Philemon's conversion. And Paul and Philemon had labored together for Christ. So, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Maybe you're not so sure about Onesimus Philemon, but you know me. We have labored together. In fact, I brought you the gospel. You owe me your very life. So if you're not sure about him, receive him on my behalf. Love him and receive him just like it was me walking in through your door. Because we are beloved brothers, and he is beloved to me, and you are beloved to me. And so I want you two to love one another. Receive him. The second aspect is forgive. Calls Philemon not just to receive him, but to forgive him. In verses 18 and 19, he says, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So he doesn't say to Philemon, If he did anything wrong to you, just forget about it. Just let it go. He says, if he did anything wrong to you, or if he owes anything, charge that to my account. If there is a debt, consider it paid by me. This is Paul imitating Christ. This is the display of the gospel in Paul's behavior through this letter. This is a reflection of the Lord as we see him portrayed in Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Christ goes before the Father and appeals on our behalf. If there is any debt that they owe, if they have offended you in any way, receive them, for I have paid it. Paul says, I write it with my own hand. I will repay. The Lord says, I bought it with my own blood. I have repaid. It is finished. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he paid it all. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. That's Paul's appeal. Forgive, I will pay it. The third is release. And that's where we get in 13 and 14 where Paul says, I would have loved to keep him by myself, for myself, to serve me, but I didn't want to do it without your permission so that your releasing of him would not be based on my authority, based on what is right, based on command, but it would be done because of your free love, because of your free response to the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is counting on as he makes this appeal. He says in verse 21, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. I make these appeals to receive and to forgive and to release, and I'm confident. Like, I don't even have to command you. I'm just making the appeal because I'm confident that by the work of Christ in your heart, you will desire to do this glorious thing, and I'm counting on the work of Christ in you. That it's one thing to do a thing because it's the right thing to do. I really want to do X, but I know that Y is right, right? There's rules that say I should do this, so I'm going to do it. Right? That is not pleasing to the Lord. Sometimes that's what we got to do, but, but that's not what the Lord is looking for. The Lord is looking to implant in us, and if we are believers, he has already implanted in us the seed of a heart and a spirit that wants to do the right thing, that desires to do the thing that glorifies Christ. Rules will only get you so far. If you ever notice, we have some trouble following rules. It's just a natural thing. But the work of the Lord Jesus puts in us a new heart and a new spirit where there is desire to be careful to keep his commandments. And as we grow we begin more and more to act accordingly to these new desires. Not out of duty, but out of love. And so Paul makes this appeal with confidence to Philemon because he takes him to be a mature brother. He has already served the saints and loved the saints. And he says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Which brings us full circle back to the beginning where he's rejoicing over Philemon. He says, Philemon, I give thanks to you because I hear, I give thanks to God for you because of your faith and your love toward the saints. And I have this great joy and encouragement because I hear that the saints are refreshed by your love. And then he writes his appeal and he says, me too. I want to be refreshed by your love. Refresh me by fulfilling these appeals. And so that's the basics of Philemon. Paul is seeking refreshment from Philemon based on the work of Christ. And his refreshment is going to come in this reconciliation and this release of Philemon to serve the Lord. There's a number of details that I didn't cover in the book, but the good news is that the Bible is always available for you to study and to go deeper. What I wanted to grab on today is that center of the book, which is the relationships. And so I want to draw our attention to application by examining our own relationships. The time has come for our DTR. Now, now, this, is, now this is for you if you are a member of North Shore Baptist Church or some other church that has fellowship in the same common doctrine and faith. If you're not a member of this church, I just can't, I can't vouch for you. I don't know what your spiritual state is, so the things I'm going to say might not apply to you. 
But if you have gone through the membership process, you have given your testimony, I know or I'm fairly confident that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. These things apply to you. What is our relationship? Because of the Father's election, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because of the gift of faith to us from God, through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, our relationship has been fundamentally altered. Look around. Look around at the members of the church. You know, no, look around. See them. These are your people. Right? These are not just other bottoms filling pews. These are not just other human beings who happen to be here on a Sunday morning. As you're looking around and you're seeing the members of North Shore Baptist Church sitting in these pews, we are family. We have been made alive in Jesus Christ and we share in the same spirit. The same Holy Spirit that lives within me and gives me life and produces faith in Jesus Christ is the same spirit that lives within you that gives you faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are united with a bond that is far superior to blood relationships. We are united by a bond that is far superior to any other kind of relationship that you could possibly think about or imagine. We are children of God. The believers in Jesus Christ, the members of God's church are children of God. And that's vertical. But that says something about horizontal. If you are a child of God and I am a child of God, then you are my sibling. And you are my sibling in a way that far surpasses my relationship with my own sister or my own brother with whom I share blood ties. My relationship with you is deeper and more intimate just by the very nature of it. And that's what you are to one another. That is the relationship that you have with one another. Whatever you might have been before you got converted whether you were biological family members or co-workers or classmates or complete strangers, the work of Jesus Christ has now made you beloved brethren, brothers and sisters with one another, beloved by the Lord and made to love one another. And the gospel calls us to live accordingly. We have a church covenant and member expectations that we give out. If you've gone through the membership process, you probably looked at them a long time ago. When you sign your name to the paper, you're saying that you agree to the covenant and the expectations. The covenant and the expectations are just we as the elders putting forth in different words what we see scripture saying as to this is how the brothers and sisters, the children of God, ought to relate to one another in the church. So if you don't have the covenant or you don't remember the covenant or the expectations, you have no recollection of what you agreed to, please email the church office. We will get them to you immediately. Go dig them out of your file cabinet. We'll be talking about it a lot more this year because the covenant and the expectations define very practically what it means to live according to being brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the short application is that if you're not living up to the expectations and the covenant, then you are not currently living properly according to the relationship that we have. And that's why the DTR comes. We have to define the relationship so that we can see the relationship and then we can tailor our behavior according to the relationship. Not because of command, but because of desire. And so like Paul, I'm going to make three specific appeals today for our application. Receive, forgive, and refresh. I'm going to start with receive. Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another 
as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. We may, with a worldly type of mindset, picture the church as a collection of nice people who are nice to each other. Or or at least that's what you want it to be. You want the church just to be a bunch of nice people who are nice to each other. Right? And, and having that vision of that being the church, we collect around ourselves the people whom we like, the people who are nice to us, the people we find easy to talk to, the people that share our own interests. Right? We, we want to receive good vibes only. Right? We, we don't want struggle in relationships in the church. We wanted everything to be nicey-nice, and we receive those who are nice. But that's not who Onesimus was. Onesimus was a debtor. Onesimus was an offender. Onesimus was a sinner. And the gospel calls Philemon to receive him as a beloved brother. I think that in the church, the gospel calls us to make intentional movements in love towards those who are different from us. We are called to make intentional movements in love towards those who disagree with us. Intentional movements in love towards those who seem like they will be able to contribute nothing to us. Intentional moves in love toward those who have offended us. It's crazy. Why would we do that? One, for reconciliation, because the body of Christ must be united, but two, to adorn the glory of the gospel. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Christ did not welcome you because you kind of shared the same jokes or you were doing the things that he was doing. He's like, I like that one. I'm going to make this one my child. You were in rebellion. You were in darkness. You were contributing nothing to Christ. You were anti-Christ. And in the midst of that relational reality, Jesus comes and says, come here. Come here. You're mine. That's the gospel. And those are the relationships that we should look to form in the church in order to elevate the gospel. Jesus says to the disciples in a different context, but it's like, if you only greet those who greet you, how are you better than the pagans? If you're only nice to people who are nice to you, you're just like the atheists. It'll make no difference. When you love those who have offended you, when you love those who are not like you, when you die to yourself and sacrifice to get together with people that you otherwise would never spend a lick of your time with, that's the gospel. That's where God is glorified. Receive one another as Christ has received you. Second is forgive. Forgive. Luke chapter 17 Verses 3 to 4, Lord is speaking to his disciples. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This is not about doing spiritual horticulture and moving plants from one place to the other. This is a metaphor for something that is impossible. Because Jesus says, forgive your brother seven times, and the apostles go, increase our faith. Like, that sounds crazy. You got to give us more faith to be able to do that. And Jesus says, if you even had a snip of faith, You could do it. You could tell a mulberry tree, go get planted in the sea. It sounds impossible to forgive someone who sins against you seven times a day. Right? Once, you're like, yeah, I forgive you. Twice already, you're like, you serious? I repent. Okay. Third time. And on and on. By the end, you're boiling. And the Lord says, you must forgive him. I don't have the faith, Lord. He says, if you have 
faith the grain of a mustard seed, you sure can. Right? If you have any understanding of the gospel, you can forgive many offenses. The Lord promises to empower you to do so. That's what he's saying. Right? You think it sounds crazy to forgive that much, but if you have any faith, the faith that I give to you, the faith that you have is possible. And you got to do it. It's possible because the work of the gospel fundamentally changes hearts. You must forgive. All right, what Paul does, right, I think he believes that Philemon knows the gospel and is probably going to forgive, but he doubles down on it, right? He says he puts himself forward as a guarantor of anything that, that Onesimus owes. He's like, all right, well, if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. But if we look past the reflection of Paul to the reality in Christ, we could see that all offenses, all that is owed, everything evil that is done that has been committed by his people is covered by his blood, is paid, even those offenses that are committed against you. The Lord says, I have paid it. That debt which you think is owed to you, which is actually owed to the Lord, Jesus Christ has paid it. And so you need to let it go. And even if the person who has offended you is not a Christian, Lord says in Romans 12, don't avenge yourself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There is no debt that is owed to you as a Christian that isn't paid already or promised to be paid. And so you have no logical necessity to hold on to bitterness and anger. Well, it's just sin to do so, number one, so you shouldn't do it, but that's a rule. But there's no, there's no necessity. If you're looking at the gospel, there is no need to continue to burn with anger towards someone who has offended you. Because that's covered. That debt is paid. And then there's the promise of restoration. Right? What God has promised to you as a believer in the Lord is that when the Lord returns, right, he's going to backfill everything that you've lost, everything that you've given up, everything that you feel like you don't have now or need now, everything that's good will be lavished upon you in the return of Christ. You will have no lack for anything ever. It's all going to be made up. And so as we walk, dying to self and laying aside debts owed to us and laying aside offenses committed against us, what we're looking towards is the fact that the Lord promises to replenish all of that with interest. So if you are a professing Christian and you are walking today in bitterness or unforgiveness, what you need to do is stop looking at the size of the debt that is owed to you and start meditating on the size of your debt that has been freely paid. Forgive. Finally, refresh. Refresh. Relational discord is like a dry throat. It, just, it feels nasty. It's raspy. It's painful. Sometimes it's, it's hard to breathe. Reconciliation is refreshing, like a cool drink on that dry throat. When you see confession, repentance, forgiveness, and love, it's like, ah. And whether, whether you're experiencing it or viewing it, right? Whether you're the one who's in the I forgive you hug, you ever have one of those I forgive you hugs and it's just like, Ah, oh, oh, that was so painful before, but now this is, this is so good because we're putting everything back together. We're reconciling. It's refreshing. Or if you're the person who's watching it happen, and you're just like, yeah, that's the work of Jesus Christ right there. Reconciliation is so beautiful. It's so refreshing. And so that's my call to you today is to refresh the saints. Right? Who is it that you can refresh either by reconciling with them or by encouraging them to reconcile. The active exercise of faith in love is refreshing. 
That's what Paul's rejoicing about in Philemon. He's like, man, your love is just overflowing. You're refreshing the saints. And I'm having so much joy and encouragement because I hear of what you're doing. Right? This, people are parched for love. The world is parched for love. And the church is supposed to be this wellspring of faith working through love to refresh the saints and to bear witness to the world. I myself am continually refreshed when I am in the presence of the saints of North Shore Baptist Church. On Sunday morning, I'm refreshed. On Tuesday afternoon in prayer meeting, I'm refreshed. On Wednesday night, Bible study, I'm refreshed. Friday night, carpenter shop, I'm just constantly drinking in this love and this fellowship and this joy in the spirit, both being loved by the saints and watching the saints love one another. There is nothing like it. There is a lot of love in this church. But we are far from perfect. We have not yet arrived at the pinnacle. But what I am convinced of, what I am sure of, is that as the Spirit of Christ begins to work or continues to work in every one of you regenerate believers, that the love is going to increase and is going to abound. And through you, the Lord is going to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think. Because the work of Jesus Christ fundamentally changes hearts. That's what it does. Finally, just a word to anyone in the house who is not a believer and anyone in the house who doubts the love of the church. Sometimes you doubt the love because you don't have eyes to see the love. Uh, sin and doubt can blind you to love. It's like, like the drug addict and his family has an intervention, right? Calling him to get clean and straighten his life out. And he feels like he's just being attacked on all sides. And what is actually happening is that these people are loving him to the uttermost. The sin and the doubt just clouds your view of love. You don't understand love. You don't see love. Um, I myself suffer a recurring nearsightedness with regards to the love. Like I have to continue to go back to the Lord and ask him to open my eyes because by nature I am so cynical that I look at everything that's wrong and those things begin to dominate my mind. And when the Lord comes to me and he says, Key, stop looking at that. Look at all of this. Look at all the love. All right? You need the Lord to open your eyes to the love that is present. So if you're not feeling the love or you're not seeing the love, Go to the Lord and ask him to show you the love. And don't be surprised if that love smacks you right in the face. And it's like, Psh, I've been here the whole time. But as a concession, sometimes we lie to you. Sometimes we lie about God to you. Our behavior towards you and towards one another is sometimes unloving and unchristlike. And what we must do is seek repentance and seek the work of the Lord in our hearts so that we would become more Christ-like and more loving so that we ourselves would not put stumbling blocks in front of you for the gospel. We need the Lord to make us more like him. And so I want to ask your forgiveness. I want to ask you to forgive us for our unloving and unchristlike actions. But what I also want to plead with you is that you don't let our bad behavior reflect on our Savior. Jesus Christ loves completely and perfectly and without flaw. We're not asking you to trust in us. We're asking you to trust in him. As we consider relationships, as we think about this message, uh, we're going to go into the Lord's Supper, which God gave to us so that we could remember the sacrifice of Christ and so that we could consider the body and think about the relationship that we have
together. So I'm going to pray, and then Brother Eric Kim is going to come and give us our exhortation for the Lord's Supper. Oh, Father, use this time as we prepare to eat this supper that you ordained with our brothers and our sisters. I pray that you would press deeply into our hearts the status of our relationship, the price that was paid to make it, and the ongoing relationship that we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, we anxiously await your return where we will be perfected in love. We pray that even now you would mature us in love, that all would be encouraged with the grace of Jesus Christ. To your glory, Father. Amen.